In 2003, the American Film Institute conducted a survey of more than 1,500 actors, directors, and critics to determine the greatest movie villain of all time. The winner? A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Beating out Norman Bates, Darth Vader, and the Wicked Witch of the West was Hannibal Lecter, the charismatic cannibal psychiatrist played by Anthony Hopkins in the 1991 film Silence of the Lambs. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. One year after the Silence of the Lambs premiered, the real-life serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was convicted. Dahmer had sexually abused and killed 17 men and boys, some as young as 14 years old. But another detail dominated news coverage. Dahmer admitted to cooking and eating the body parts of his victims. This earned him the nickname, the Milwaukee Cannibal, a moniker that captioned mugshots in newspapers around the world. I don't remember much from 1992, when I was eight years old, but I do remember hearing about Jeffrey Dahmer. All the teachers and kids at school were talking about the case especially the detail that Dahmer kept his victim's body parts in his refrigerator. I had nightmares that he would come into my room when I was sleeping and kill me, cut me into pieces, and eat my body part by part. As the enduring cultural impact of Hannibal Lecter and Jeffrey Dahmer demonstrate, there are few things that frighten us more than the idea of being eaten by another human being. But cannibalism isn't just something that scares us it has also long been used to define the limits of what makes us human. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we'll examine the figure of the cannibal as it looms in the Western imagination and the way that fear of cannibalism was used to justify the enslavement of millions. Greek mythology is full of stories that condemn cannibalism, which was seen as an abominable act and a practice that divided the civilized and savage worlds. One famous example is found in Homer's Odyssey. The Cyclops Polyphemus traps the hero Odysseus and his crew in his cave, and in defiance of Greek customs of hospitality, begins to devour Odysseus's men. A 1997 NBC miniseries dramatizes the scene with a dialogue between Odysseus and Polyphemus. Men do not eat one another. Cyclops do. (laughs) Because the crime of cannibalism was considered so monstrous, cannibals were often depicted in myth as actual monsters, or even more commonly, as subhuman creatures. These characters are human-like, but they have deformed physical features to match their evidently deformed powers of reason. The unnaturally large, one-eyed cyclops is one example of this kind of subhuman. But there is another cannibalistic creature that is even more consequential for world history. For more than 2,000 years, Europeans believed that a race of cannibalistic humans with dog heads lived in some distant land. The Greek physician Ctesias was the first to write about these dog-headed creatures. In his 5th century BCE work, The Indica, he claimed that in India, there lived a civilization of 120,000 dark-skinned people who had heads like dogs, barked to communicate, and ate raw meat. When Alexander the Great invaded India in the 4th century BCE, he wrote to his teacher Aristotle that he had battled the dog-headed men 
and that they were vicious and bloodthirsty. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote that they lived not in India, but on the eastern side of Libya, while the Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder placed them in Ethiopia. Though they disagreed on the exact location, these authors tended to locate cannibals on the outer edges of the civilized world. But beginning in the first century CE, Romans concerned about the rise of a new religious movement began to turn their accusations of cannibalism against a group of people who gathered each week to eat the body of their god. The Christian doctrine of transubstantiation states that the bread and wine offered at communion is literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Emily Anderson, the curator of the cannibals exhibit at the San Diego Museum of Man, explains. Just to, you know, demonstrate how literal this was, there are a lot of stories um, dating back to this time and then, you know, extending forward in 15th, 16th, 17th century of, um, you know, miracle stories or vision stories of people seeing literal pieces of flesh on the plate where the wafers were, people seeing like a baby on the plate. If Europeans were fascinated by cannibalism before, now they were obsessed. When that is your dominant framework for your religious belief, that shapes everything else. You can see why the idea of eating a person comes to become a fairly dominant thing. As Christianity replaced the Roman Empire as the dominant power in Europe, the church denied the accusation of cannibalism. According to the church, partaking of communion wasn't cannibalism, it was a sacred ritual. But the theological proximity of cannibalism and communion transformed cannibalism from a crime against people. It was a crime against God. The first group of people accused of this type of sacrilege was European Jews. During the Middle Ages, Jewish people were charged with kidnapping, slaughtering, and consuming the blood of Christian children, a repeated set of rumors known as blood libel. There was truth and heresy, and here these people, not only were they heretical, but they seem to be mocking Christian ritual through their rituals. There is no proof that Jews ever baked matzah with the blood of murdered Christian children. But that didn't stop those in power from torturing and murdering those accused of the crime. These accusations against Jews exemplify the widespread belief that non-Christians were savages, prone to, quote, unnatural behaviors, the most heinous of which was eating human flesh. As Europeans began exploring new lands, they carried these perceptions of cannibalism with them. While describing his travels to the Andaman Islands, located in the Bay of Bengal, close to India, the 13th century Venetian explorer Marco Polo wrote, The people are without a king and are idolaters and no better than wild beasts. And I assure you, all the men of this island have heads like dogs and teeth and eyes likewise. In fact, in the face, they are all just like big mastiff dogs. They are a most cruel generation and eat everybody that they can catch. Marco Polo spent 24 years in the Mongol Empire, often with the great Khan himself. He wrote about Asian lands and how they were full of gold and man-eating pagans. His travelogue became the most popular book in Europe. Two centuries later, in 1492, Christopher Columbus brought a heavily annotated copy of Polo's book with him on his journey to the Americas along with centuries of stories about subhuman monsters living on the edge of civilization. Danielle Bainbridge, host of the PBS web series Origin of Everything, explains. 
When he first accidentally landed in the Caribbean in 1492, Columbus arrived and met the friendly Arawaks. They promptly said that their enemies, the Caribs, were man-eaters. Now, this was the first recorded meeting of these two groups, so the accuracy of the translation is pretty important to keep in mind. He writes in his journal that he was told, a long distance from here, there are men with one eye and others with dog snouts who eat men. Later, on November 23rd, 1492, Columbus first wrote the word cannibals as another term for the supposedly dog-snouted carrot people. And this is the first instance where the term cannibal is linked explicitly to a group of people who eat people meat. Columbus used the term caribs and cannibs interchangeably to describe this man-eating tribe. He believed that the closeness of the terms cannib and the Great Khan proved that he was in Asia, just like Marco Polo. And if he was in Asia, that meant gold was within reach. When he didn't find gold, he looked for the next best thing, and, and those, those were humans, that, slaves. That's Bill Shutt. He's a zoologist and the author of Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. Columbus needed to find something profitable, so his new plan was to sell the humans he found in the Caribbean. But there was a problem. Queen Isabella of Spain, who helped to finance Columbus's voyage, condemned slavery as an unchristian practice. She said that if the indigenous people were peaceful and willing to convert to Christianity, then they must be treated humanely. But she made one exception to this rule. If they're cannibals, then all bets are off, and you can do anything you want with them. Responding to Columbus's reports about the violent Carib tribe, Queen Isabella decreed that any cannibal unwilling to convert to Christianity and become subject to the Spanish crown could be captured and sold. Columbus seized on this exception. During his first voyage, his description of the locals was that, that they were peaceful and that they were eager to become Christians. But beginning with his second voyage, he began describing all native peoples as savage cannibals. So lo and behold, his next several voyages were more like armed invasions, and these formerly nice, compliant, potential Christians were, were labeled as subhumans to be exterminated, uh, enslaved, their, their cultures utterly destroyed. They were hunted like animals. And he had complete justification to do this because they weren't really human. They were cannibals. Columbus and subsequent explorers, such as Hernan Cortez in Mexico and Francisco Pizarro in Peru, exploited this loophole in Queen Isabella's decree and labeled thousands of indigenous people in the Americas as cannibals to justify their murder and enslavement. Between two and five and a half million indigenous peoples were enslaved in the Americas between Columbus's arrival in 1492 and 1880. Slavery, along with warfare and new European diseases, resulted in the death of 90% of the indigenous population. But to European readers, tales of Christian explorers on grand adventures who conquered the savage cannibal were tremendously popular. The English writer Daniel Defoe's 1719 novel, Robinson Crusoe, was seen as an instructional text for young boys on how to handle the untamed new world and its dangers. In the story, the narrator Robinson Crusoe is stranded on a Caribbean island near Trinidad. One day, Crusoe rescues a native man from being eaten by a tribe of Caribs. He then goes about the task of civilizing him. He begins by giving him a new name. Here's a clip from a 1954 film adaptation. Come here! You, Friday. You, Friday. 
dry day. And then Crusoe establishes the relationship, pointing to himself and saying, Master, Master! Crusoe teaches Friday to speak English, to be a good Christian, and especially that he should not eat people. No, no, eat man! Wrong, wrong! But he doesn't ever fully trust him. I dare not sleep. If the cannibals fail to come at me before morning, he might. Crusoe keeps Friday as a servant, implying that the best way to civilize a savage is to subordinate him. European and American fascination with cannibalism lasted well beyond the 1700s. As Westerners continued to explore and colonize new areas, the paradigm of the savage cannibal followed close behind. The cannibal Indian became the cannibal African or the cannibal Pacific Islander. In the 19th and 20th centuries, Westerners' fascination with cannibals and other so-called primitives led to the creation of the human zoo, a place where captured natives were put on display in cages and exhibitions and advertised as living examples of the early stages of human evolution. One such individual was Otabenga, a teenage Mbuti pygmy from the Belgian Congo. He was purchased by an American missionary who was searching for Africans to display at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. Because his teeth had been ceremonially filed into sharp points, he was kept behind bars and advertised as a cannibal. Otabenga attracted huge crowds of spectators, who often poked and prodded him with sticks. Two years after he was brought to St. Louis, he was transferred to the Bronx Zoo in New York, where he shared a cage with an orangutan and was billed as the missing evolutionary link. Human bones were scattered on the floor to heighten the fear of his supposed cannibalism. While some spectators may have felt pity or shame at the sight of a caged man, the New York Times reassured readers that he was, quote, one of a race that scientists do not rate high in the human scale. When World War I broke out in 1914, it became impossible to book a passenger ship to Africa, and Ota Benga lost hope of ever returning to his home. He threw his clothes in a ceremonial fire and shot himself in the heart. Westerners used the label of cannibalism as a weapon against the people they colonized. But the irony is that historians have more credible documentation of cannibalism being practiced in Europe and colonial America than they do about cannibalism practiced elsewhere. For example, during the First Crusade in 1098, a priest named Fulcher of Chartres described an incident in Syria in which the European crusaders, quote, harassed by the madness of excessive hunger, cut pieces from the buttocks of the Saracens roasted them by the fire, and devoured it with savage mouth. In addition to cannibalism on the battlefield, there were many recorded incidents of man-eating during times of starvation. In colonial Jamestown, during the winter of 1609, starvation was so severe that there's one account of a man killing and eating his pregnant wife. A similar practice occurred at sea. In 1820, the stranded sailors of the American whale ship Essex drew lots to decide who would be killed and eaten. They were following what was known as the custom of the sea, a practice commonly adopted when ships capsized and food ran out. So the hare is commended for the production of hares, for the jaundice, and for stopping a hemorrhage. That's Emily Anderson again. She's flipping through a replica of an old corpse medicine book that's displayed at the Museum of Man in San Diego. 
Corpse medicine was a European practice of using body parts from deceased human beings to heal the sick and wounded. The ideal person from which you wanted your corpse medicine was a young, healthy man, strong, young, healthy man, um, who had died a quick, violent death. Because at the time, for these people, their understanding of death was that it wasn't instantaneous, that, you know, a quick death would leave an essence of that person still in their body, and that if you harvested that, you could transfer that essence to you. This wasn't something that only, you know, people out in the far sticks practice. This was cutting-edge medicine um, theorized by sort of the leading scientists of their time. Corpse medicine was not limited to the recently deceased. Here's Bill Shutt. To me, probably the most interesting was a mistranslation of an, of an Arabic word, mumia. And apparently the, the Arabs, when they were in Egypt, described this tarry substance that, that the ancient Egyptians used in preparing mummies. And the Europeans, when they came along, mistranslated that word mumia. They believed they were, that, that what was being talked about as having medicinal value were, were real mummies. And so there was a run on mummies and mummies were being brought back to Europe, not to display in museums, but to grind up into powders and elixirs. And there was a shortage of mummies that took place. And so there were all of these ersatz mummies popping up. People were preparing bodies that had just died to make it look like they had been mummified. Uh, and all this from a culture that used the term cannibalism as a, as a bludgeon when they encountered foreign cultures. Europeans who practiced corpse medicine consumed the bodies of human beings. But corpse medicine wasn't called cannibalism. Neither was custom of the sea. Cannibal was a label reserved to denote a savage, unchristian practice, and thus savage, unchristian peoples. The irony goes even further. Western explorers tended to emphasize the violence and viciousness of cannibalism in the New World, but cannibalistic rituals were often performed out of love. Some tribes who adopted this devotional cannibalism saw it as more civilized than European alternatives. One of the ones that, that, that jumps out at me uh, is, is a group of indigenous people from Brazil. And when the anthropologist moved in and met up with them in the 1960s and, and early 1970s, and this was a group called the Waré, and the Waré were just as disgusted to learn that Westerners buried their dead as the Westerners were to learn that the Waré consumed their dead. And, and so their response was something along the lines of, how could you think it's civilized to put your dead loved ones in the ground? Why wouldn't you incorporate them into yourself? Why, why would you let worms eat them? To Europeans, the idea of consuming a person's soul was a depraved practice. But for the Wari, it was the best way to keep a loved one close. Devotional cannibalism was performed around the world. In China, dynastic records show how people practiced a form of cannibalism similar to corpse medicine. Bill Shutt describes one such example. And so there were examples for, uh, of filial piety where a loved one, usually an elder or parent or a grandparent, was really sick, that one of the last resorts would be that you, as a grandchild or a son or a daughter, would cut off a piece of your arm or your leg and feed it to your loved one with the idea that this would have medicinal value. Stories like these complicate European colonial categories of civilized and savage. Indeed, the French essayist Montaigne explored this very question in his essay On Cannibalism, 600 years ago. He questioned whether it's more evil to eat a dead human than to torture a living person. 
Montaigne forces us to reckon with the fact that our cultural norms are sometimes only cultural conventions, not the absolute truth they claim to represent. Europeans might have claimed cannibalism to be the most barbaric practice imaginable, but in fact, their accusations of cannibalism led to the torture and deaths of millions of natives from the Americas and Africa. Medicinal and ritual cannibalism have for the most part ended around the globe. Because of the Western taboo associated with it, many tribes have stopped partaking in traditional funerary rites. The Wari, for example, now bury their dead. And with the advent of modern medicine, corpse medicine and similar practices have faded into obscurity. But literature and media continue to use the image of the cannibal to represent society's most terrifying monsters. Marvel's blockbuster hit Black Panther brilliantly subverts the cannibal trope. The film primarily takes place in the fictional African country of Wakanda, a secret society of advanced technology and peace. One of the Wakandan tribes, the Jabari, is at first portrayed to be more brutish and savage than the rest of the more civilized tribes. Like the dog-headed cannibals in European myth, the Jabari tribe are shown barking, wearing simple furs, and threatening to consume human flesh. Toward the end of the film, several Wakandans are in the Jabari throne room with CIA agent Everett Ross, one of the film's few white characters, and the head of the Jabari tribe, M'Baku. When Ross interrupts M'Baku, M'Baku turns on him. You cannot talk. One more word and I will feed you to my children. I'm kidding, we are vegetarians. <laughs> With this one joke, Black Panther reveals and overturns thousands of years of accumulated prejudice. Because the Jabari tribe lacked modern technology, in the eyes of Agent Ross and their fellow Wakandans, they were reduced to savages. The history of cannibalism suggests that we should be cautious in labeling or stereotyping other cultures and peoples. Not only are these labels highly prone to be inaccurate, they can also threaten the groups being described with very real harm. Currently, large numbers of Middle Eastern and South Asian peoples are affected by the label terrorist, and groups of Latin Americans suffer from terms like illegal or alien. We ought to exercise care when we lump groups together based on our own fears, particularly because our own societies are often guilty of the very crimes we most fervently condemn. We need to critically examine what most terrifies us and make sure it doesn't lead us to act inhumanely. Because as we see with the case of the cannibal, labels themselves can become more dangerous than the behavior they seek to describe. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, and Pallavi Kathamasu. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. This episode was produced by Pallavi Kathamasu. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast... You can support us by sharing the show with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, 
or becoming a patron on Patreon. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I want to expand your moral and ethical horizons today with a very special episode of Hub & Spoke's show, Hi-Fi Nation. Host Barry Lamb takes you to the 2017 High School Ethics Bowl in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and the results will leave you absolutely stunned. If you feel like feeling morally inferior, check out hifination.org for more. That's H-I-P-H-I-Nation.org or anywhere podcasts are available. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.